Welcome again to Seven Hills Fellowship. Uh, my name's Tom Combs. I work for Young Life as a day job and uh, get the chance to uh, speak to you this morning. But I do want to say this is Seven Hills Fellowship, even though this does not look like the auditorium. Uh, uh, this is uh, the set for um, Alice in Wonderland. It's, uh, we share this space with, uh, so we have these unusual, it's not my props, I guess I just wanted you to know that. So. Um, I uh, work for Young Life. We've been in Rome for about two and a half years, my family and I have. And I just want to say this from the very beginning. We, we moved from Atlanta. And when you come from a big city to a small town, or really when you come from anywhere to a small town, one of the things you wonder is, we're going to find our place. Are we going to be able to crack the code of the small town? And I would just like to say this on behalf of my family. We have loved being in Rome. Uh, for you native Romans out there, thank you for sharing your town with us. We feel like we're a part of this place. And then equally to the Seven Hills Fellowship community, I, I want to say thank you because you have welcomed us as well. We feel like we're a part of you, and we're really grateful for that. It's great to feel like we belong. So if you're here this morning and you are visiting Seven Hills and you're wondering, is this the kind of place where we could belong or fit in? I'll just tell you from our personal experience, it really is. So we want to say Welcome to you, and, uh, and come back and join us again. Uh, before I go any further, though, I'd just like to offer a, a very brief prayer for us. So let's pray. Lord, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I don't think it would be a stretch to say that life is full of questions. And sometimes there are simple questions that have fairly simple answers. And sometimes there are complicated questions that have more complicated answers. And then there are sometimes when you get the question and you're not really sure whether it, which one it is. So, for example, at my house, this could happen to me. Hypothetically, of course, you can imagine. Uh, my daughter comes to me and says, Dad, can you help me with my math homework? I need to know how to divide by fractions. So in, instantly in that moment, there's this little... <laughs> A little bit of panic where I think, do I know how to divide by fractions? <laughs> this might be more complicated than I'm expecting here. Uh, but you know, fortunately, take a minute, gather myself, look at the homework, figure it out, and it turns out that it was actually more simple than I thought that it wasn't so complicated after all. But there are other instances, surely uh, we would agree that there are complicated questions that are way more complicated than math problems. Really, really deep kind of questions like, what is my purpose? Why am I here? How do I deal with this ongoing feeling of insecurity or this particular struggle in my life? And we'd be relatively sure that those are the complicated kind of questions with complex answers. Well, I want you to know that actually there are some among us, uh, experts in the fields, who, who know how to navigate through these really complex questions to end up at really simple but very profound answers to deal with these. And so I have a video clip to illustrate this to show you um, an example of how this might happen. So let's, uh, let's watch this. Tell me about the problem that you wish to address. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. <laughs> I just I start thinking about being buried alive and I begin to panic. Has, has, has anyone ever, ever tried to, to bury you alive in a box? No. No, but truly thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't, 
go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house, anything boxy. So what, what you're saying is you're, uh, you're claustrophobic. Uh, yes. Yes, that's it. All right. Well, uh, let's go, Kazan. I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I, I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in, into your life. Well, shall I uh, write them down? Well, it, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most, we find most people can, uh, can remember them. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yes. Okay, here, here they are. Stop it! <laughs> I'm sorry? Stop it! Stop it? Yes, S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. So, what are you saying? <laughs> you, you know, it's funny. I, I, I say two simple words, and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you're saying. I mean, this, you know, this is not Yiddish, Catherine. This is English. Stop it. So I should just stop it. There you go. I mean, you, you, you don't want to go through life being scared of being buried alive in a box, do you? I mean, that sounds, sounds frightening. It is. Then stop it. I can't. I mean, it's been with me no, since no, childhood. No, no, no. No, we, 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 we don't go there. Just, just stop it. See, profound, simple answers to really complicated questions. This is what I think is really remarkable about that actor right there. There's a certain threshold or age group and down where you know him as Papa Elf, Buddy's dad from Elf, right? And then there, above that threshold, you know him as Bob Newhart from the Newhart show in the 90s or even the Bob Newhart show back in the 70s. It goes way back over decades there. So there's something for everybody in, in the room right here. Well, I show you that um, because... It's obviously a humorous approach to really complicated questions. But if we're dealing with even more complicated questions like, what really is the heart of Christianity? Or what does it really mean to be a follower of Jesus? What's the core of that? Or even more specifically, how do we deal with sin? Those are complicated questions. But oftentimes, when I, when I look at my own life, and I think about my own history, or I look around at others, I just have this suspicion that there are times when kind of the theological equivalent of stop it sort of works its way into our hearts and minds, and we think really that's it. That's the essence of what it means now to be a Christian. Just stop it. And I think the reason this happens is this. In contemporary Christianity, we are far more articulate about what it is that we have been freed from by Jesus and far less articulate about what we've been freed to. We're, we're far more articulate about what we're freed from in Christ. But we just don't know how to, to dream or imagine or articulate what has we been freed for in him. We're a lot better at talking about what Christianity is against and not nearly as good at talking about or even living out what Christianity is for. And that, there's even really data to prove this. When, when Christians are interviewed, what is, what is Christianity? Evangelicals, what is Christianity? Young people involved in youth groups, what is Christianity? Almost always is defined by what it stands against, but not what it's for. 
Uh, so I think the, the, the narrative we kind of crafted for ourselves without realizing it is something like this. Well, Jesus died for my sins, so I'm going to go to heaven when I die, so I'm, I'm good there. But then from that point forward, we, we live under this vague expectation that God has for us to like, get out there and live for him or, or, or stop sinning so much. And so we end up living in kind of this cycle of trying hard not to sin or mess up, and then we fail, and then we live in the shame of that, and then we dig down deep for some new resolve, and we go, we're not going to do that again, and so we try real hard, and then we fail, and then we live in the shame of that, and we dig down deep, and we try real hard, and we fail, and this is a continuous cycle of, of life. And somewhere in, in the, the reason that enters in is because we've just got this notion that somehow know what God would really like, rather than perpetually forgiving us, is he would just like for us to stop it. But when we think about that kind of cycle of life, the only hope for there is that we can just hurry up and die and go to heaven and kind of leave all that behind. But that's, that's not flourishing life. That's not, that's not full life. But I think we get there because whether we realize it or not, we have accepted a, a shrunken down version of the gospel. That we've taken a little bit of the gospel out of the larger story of the gospel, the story of God at work in all of history to make things right in the world. And we've kind of shrunken it down. So what I want to do this morning is, is take you to a moment in the life of Jesus that's both dramatic on the part of Jesus, but also, I think, very revealing about the nature of God. But... At the same time, if we, if we leave this story right where it ends, we might fall in, into the trap of seeing it as uh, another example of that sort of stop it version of the gospel. So we're going to look at John 8, where Jesus encounters a woman caught in adultery. But before we do that, <clears throat> I want to remind you of something that happens here in this moment with Jesus uh, that is an exact reflection of what God in heaven is like. Jesus went out of his way, especially in the Gospel of John, to tell us that he and the Father are one. In John 15, he just says it straightforward. I and the Father are one. But then in John 5, he says, look, the Son of Man can only do what he sees his Father in heaven doing. There's this remarkable unity between them. Jesus doesn't divert from the script anywhere. He only does what he sees his Father in heaven doing. And then in John 14, he says, look, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's just this remarkable unity between us. We're on the same page, and we operate together here. In other words, Jesus represents the face of God. And especially in this story that we're about to see here, he images for us God's heart and God's desire. And that's an important reminder because that's part of the larger story of the gospel that this moment that we're going to read from fits into. So let's read this together here. Uh, John 8, starting in verse 2. At dawn, he, Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts while all the people were gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the, law of Mo the law, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? 
And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older one first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Uh, you know, in light of the fact that we've got an Alice in Wonderland scene here, uh, it would be hard for us to imagine ourselves in that moment. So I'm going to put a picture up on the screen here, uh, a painting. Well, can't see it so well in here. <clears throat> Let me just tell you what's going on. Uh, <clears throat> here's Jesus right here. And uh, they're in this big cathedral area here. And this is a painting from Rembrandt. It's really interesting to me because Rembrandt later in his life kind of returned to the faith of his youth in Christ and painted a number of famous paintings uh, depicting scenes from the Bible, a famous picture, a painting of the return of the prodigal son. There's this beautiful painting of the Jesus in the boat with his disciples caught in the, the storm, this giant wave the boat's on. And then this one here, uh, Jesus uh, with the woman caught in adultery. What's really interesting to me, first of all, is that there's light on these figures, mainly on the Pharisee, Jesus, and the woman uh, in this scene. But what, are, what I really love about what Rembrandt has done here is that Jesus is the tallest dude in the room. He, he puts him head and shoulders above everyone else so that you can see uh, who's really in charge right here. Now, the, the Pharisees and Jesus butted heads all the time. And one of the reasons they butted heads all the time was because the Pharisees really, really loved the law. Now, Jesus really, really loved the law. Jesus understood that God gave the law to his people as a means of creating an identity for them. It was, uh, it was the means for them to flourish in life. And not only for them to flourish, but if they lived out according to that, that order, that pattern of the law, they would be a light to all the peoples, all the nations around them, and it would draw people in so that they would know the one true God in the same way that they did. But if you know Israel's history, they didn't do such a good job of staying on task with the law. They were, they were really disobedient. For generation after generation, they disobeyed the law. They abused the law. They ignored the law. They flouted the law. And they didn't become a whole flourishing people. They became a disintegrated people. And eventually, over time, they were overrun by other nations, uh, culminating when the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem. And they destroyed the temple, the most sacred place in all of Israel. And they tore down the walls of Jerusalem. And then and the remaining Israelites that were left were deported to Babylon, which is present-day Iraq. It was the low point in Israel's history. But later, after they were allowed to return, they began to kind of build things back again. And in that period from the end of the Old Testament to the New Testament, there emerged this, this group who, who said, you know what, we've got to figure out how we avoid the mistakes of the past. And our big problem was that we didn't obey the law. And this was the Pharisees. So the Pharisees said, we we're going to protect the law. And so what they decided to do was to put a number of other 
regulations and rules kind of around the law like a fence. And I think in some ways their thinking was, if somebody breaks one of those other rules, we can kind of catch them before they break the law. And we'll sort of protect the law that way. But the problem was that when they put all these protections and rules and traditions around the law, they didn't really protect the law. They just choked it off. They, they took the law, which was meant to be a means into flourishing as God's people, and they made it an end. In effect, they just killed it. So you could see why Jesus and the Pharisees would butt heads. Because they thought they were protecting the law, and Jesus goes, you're taking the life out of it. And Jesus wouldn't go along with some of these little traditions and things they added because he knew this was not helping, it was only making it worse. But these guys would get really incensed at Jesus because they weren't keeping, he wasn't keeping their traditions. So here's an example of what happens here. They want to trap Jesus, so they find a woman caught in the very act of adultery. Now, I looked this up before I came in the most reliable source that I could find, Wikipedia. And according to Wikipedia, adultery, get this, it requires two people. And one of them needs to be married to someone else. And strangely, there's just one person brought into the room caught in the very act of adultery. Now, that ought to send off alarm bells. And thankfully, Jesus is perceptive enough. He knows something's up here. This is a trap. And so here's what he does. Jesus bends down and he starts to write in the sand. There's all this this abuse and scorn and anger being directed at her. She's a lawbreaker. She's a violator. And Jesus just bends down in the sand and starts drawing or writing or something. Nobody even knows really what's down here, what he's doing. And it may not really even matter. Because I think for sure in the same way that your eyes would be tempted to follow me as I kneel down, which is a little unusual right here, um, that what happens in this moment is that all the abuse and the scorn and the shame that was on her now gets directed to Jesus. And I think if we're paying attention, and I think this would be intentional on Jesus' part, that Jesus is doing this because it's a foreshadow of the cross. If you've got eyes to see, ears to hear, Jesus is going, in a few chapters, I'm going to be on a cross. And all the shame and the scorn and the abuse that's meant to be heaped on us will be redirected to Jesus. Just a little tidbit there for us. Jesus rides in the sand, and then he stands up. And he says, okay, any of you who are without sin... Go ahead and throw the first stone. Now, I want to I try to enter into the, uh, the inner workings of Jesus here for just a second. Uh, in the Gospel of John, in John 1, and then later in Colossians, it's really clear. Uh, it says that, that really everything that was created in the world was created through Jesus. Every created thing has his mark on it. It's, it's fashioned according to the way of Jesus the way it was meant to be, every created thing. It's as if Jesus is this masterful artisan who who fashions together with great care these lovely, amazing, beautiful violins. And all of creation is like a hall filled with all of these wonderful, beautiful violins that he's made. So you can imagine 
that we, when he encounters a moment where somebody is taking one of those violins and just hammering it, that internally, it's got to be all he can do to not just fly into a righteous rage. And when Jesus sees this woman caught in adultery, and this is a setup, this is a trap, these are the Pharisees for crying out loud who who are steeped in the Torah. They're steeped in the Word of God, and they know she is created in the image of God. But they can overlook that completely, ignore that, and go, we're going to use her for our own agenda right here to trap Jesus. Man, it's amazing to me that Jesus is so restrained in that moment. He has this unbelievable compassion in this moment that rises up. And you could understand why, right? So when he says to them, okay, any of you who are without sin, and I don't think Jesus is even suggesting that anyone in the room could possibly go, no, I've never sinned before. Even the Pharisees wouldn't claim that. I think the way this is worded originally, it implies that Jesus is saying anyone in this space right now who doesn't have anything to do with this conspiracy, okay, you go ahead and throw the first stone. And then one by one, they start to drop their stones, oldest to the youngest, and they walk away. And then Jesus looks. There's no one around, and he asks her, where where are your accusers? Are there any left? Is there anyone here? And she says, no one, sir. Jesus says, well, then I don't condemn you either. Go and leave your life of sin. And this is a beautiful picture of the heart of Jesus. It, it, it shows his unexpl- inexplicable mercy. But it also reflects God's heart too. They're in remarkable unity. But admittedly, this passage to me ends kind of abruptly. And if we only understand Jesus' work as freeing us from something, namely sin, and then then the idea of just go and leave your life of sin could easily uh, become that shrunken down version of the gospel that we have unknowingly accepted in our lives so often. We are free from sin, and I want to be clear about that. But if that's all that's going on here, and Jesus and God are not in this remarkable unity, then we might find ourselves as thinking of Jesus as kind of the nice one here. But God is the one who remains aloof, maybe with his arms folded, a little tired of dealing with sin, and he's going, just stop it. But I don't think that John ends the story here because there's nothing more to say or do. It's important to think of this moment in the life of Jesus as part of this larger story that we call the gospel, the good news of an invitation into forgiveness and freedom, and then into restoration, into life the way it was meant to be, into flourishing into wholeness, into joy. That's what we're freed for. And that is the dimension to the gospel that I think we we have to get better at articulating, talking out, and we have to get better at living out. Now, I know this to be the case because after the resurrection, those early followers of Jesus didn't say, okay, Jesus died for our sins, so now we're going to go to heaven when we die. So now let's just try to figure out how to not sin so much. That's not what they did. They they had a vision for a flourishing life. It's what they were known for. 
They had a reputation because they imitated Jesus. And Jesus' vision was that the church, the the ecclesia, the Greek word for gathering, this little ragtag band of people would be the place where hope would dwell. And, And not simply stop it, but flourishing and joy. Last week, Cabell Sweeney was here, and she shared about wrestling with God as loving and kind in the midst of incredible pain and suffering. But she talked about what she called the common things in, in our stories, the kind of things that we all experience, pain and sickness, abuse, insecurities, struggles with fertility, wayward children, divorce, loss, suffering. And she reminded us that these are inevitable. They are inevitable realities of life, but we're not meant to live as if they didn't exist. Uh, Brian Pierce tells us often that a value at Seven Hills is that every member is a minister. And the truth is that I think we function better if we just live that way. Where we're creating a space where the expectation is not a contrived sort of facade Christianity, kind of like an Instagram Christianity where you just sort of put your best images out there. But uh, a Christianity is defined by um, our, our openness, our vulnerability, uh, like John was talking about earlier. We're meant for something far beyond. Stop it. We're meant to be a people of incredible openness with our pain and suffering and even the fallout from bad choices but we're those people who have the hope of transformation in our midst. That hope is founded on the inexplicable mercy of God. And that's seen clearly in Jesus. God, in the person of Jesus, meets us where we are. His grand vision, his large story, is that he does not intend us to leave us there. God meets us exactly where we are, He has no intention of just leaving us there. He meets us not to simply say, stop it. He meets us to graciously restore us into life the way it was meant to be. How does he do that? How does that happen? Well, it happens by us being the church. Being God's restored people who practice restoration and flourishing. Because we're now empowered by Jesus' Spirit. It's in our midst. So we might do things like this, and we do things like this. We walk alongside one another, and we point one another to the inexplicable, merciful Jesus when we're shamed by our sin or when we're feeling inadequate or insecure in our own lives. Together, we bring words of of the truth, of hope, and restoration. Or we share out of the abundance out of our own abundance when others are lacking. We're willing to risk generosity because we believe that there are others in our midst who will be there for us if we're the ones that are lacking. We do great things like we make meals for each other to lighten the loads that we carry when there's an illness or a new baby or someone whose care is demanding a lot from us at the time. We do those kind of things. We recognize injustices in the space around us And we step in. We step in to begin to join with God in making things right. So that's why there are people at Seven Hills who are 
aligning themselves with the Ruth and Naomi shelter to, to create a safe space for, for women and moms and small children to live free from fear and to experience dignity and hope. In a similar sort of way, there are people in this community who are, who are going to work together with young lives to uh, this ministry to teenage moms to do what we can to step, step into that, that, that vacuum, that hole, to help break the cycle that poverty often has so that these moms and these children have hope. We, we celebrate with one another. We celebrate when there is a victory, when there wasn't a job and now there is a job, when there's a new child in the family, when someone who was sick is now healed. We should celebrate together, and we should celebrate really well. You read through the New Testament, and you read, especially in the life of Jesus, there's a lot of talk about celebration. It's a, it's a thing uh, to Jesus. Told a lot of stories about celebration. That's who we ought to be, people who celebrate. It's a high value, and it's a characteristic of a flourishing people. We, of all people, have something to celebrate. These are the kind of things that we're freed for, and there's lots of others. But Jesus sent his spirit so that we could practice hope and healing and joy. And when we do, and here's the really interesting thing, when we do that, we find that these kinds of actions actually have a transformative effect on us from the inside out. We practice them, but they become real internally in us. We become solid people. We possess what C.S. Lewis called the weight of glory of a heaviness about us in the best sort of way. We're freed from sin, but the good news of the gospel is far more than, now just stop it. The good news for us is that you are freed into a flourishing life. And the call for us at Seven Hills is to be the church, that renewed people of God who join in with God to make things right. And here in our fellowship, but also out into the community of Rome, Georgia, and out into the world beyond that. That's what we're freed for. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the way that you pursue us. You're relentless in your pursuit of us asking where are we, but not so that we may be shamed and paralyzed, but so that we may be free and flourishing. And I do pray that we would give ourselves over to your spirit and that we would practice the kind of transformation that you give us through that spirit. And in the name of Jesus, amen.